This morning we're going to be considering the creation ordinance of work or labor. In a few weeks I'm going to be preaching about work after the fall. It'll be a bit of a follow-up to this sermon. So if you take some notes this morning in your bulletin or in your Genesis journal, you may want to keep those handy a few weeks from now. Today we want to consider um, not work after the fall, but work as God intended it in the beginning and what it can now be because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to say besides the scriptures this morning, and our sermon text is probably on the screen or will be, it's in your bulletin, we're going to be in parts of Genesis 1 and 2 uh, yet again, but for good reason. Besides the scriptures, uh, this week I've been studying three helpful resources. I always like to share those when I've found them uh, particularly helpful, and they are these. First, I've been reading Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor. Secondly, uh, a shorter but also very helpful book by Benjamin Quinn and Walter Strickland called Every Waking Hour. And finally, I've been listening to a podcast, um, The White Horse Inn, which helpfully to me has been discussing work for the last three weeks. So I want to commend all of those to you, uh, but mostly I just want to say uh, uh, most of, of what I'm going to share this morning probably comes from uh, one of those two authors or the hosts of that podcast. I want to give credit where credit is due. Now turn back with me once again to Genesis 1, uh, 26, and beginning there we'll hit a few selected verses. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Jumping down to Genesis 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Father, you have purpose in all that you do, and there is purpose for us. I pray that through your word this morning, we would see it. We would see the design, the dignity, the purpose, and the freedom we have to work to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. 
What in the world are you doing? I remember hearing this question a number of times when I was growing up. It usually came from my parents. Of course, the meaning of the phrase, it's a little shrouded, isn't it? If you're not a native English speaker, you might not understand it. Or if you're not from the South, maybe. I don't know. So the way the question was asked to me, it might be more clear to say, out of all the logical things you could be doing in this current situation, what could have possibly made you choose this? Well, this morning, I want to ask you that same question, but with a slightly different connotation. I want to ask it like this. What in the world are you doing? When you aren't here on Sunday morning, what are you doing the rest of the time? Let me put a finer point on it. Tomorrow is Monday morning. What in this community will you be doing? Are you longing for it or are you dreading it? Whether we are a lawyer, a craftsman, a homemaker, a business owner, what awaits most of us tomorrow morning is some form of labor. Is that a good thing or an unfortunate thing? It's honesty time. You see, whether you know it or not, you have some kind of attitude toward your work. You may love it, you may hate it, you may long for it, you may dread it. You may find the greatest fulfillment in it, you may begrudgingly accept it as a necessary evil. But we all have some sort of attitude toward our work. Now, what I'm going to say next may come as a great shock to some of you. And here it is. Are you ready? There was work in paradise. In fact, it might be more accurate to say most of Adam and Eve's time in paradise was spent working. Is that shocking to you? You see, the picture we get from Genesis is that man was made to live and thrive in paradise in a pattern of six days of work and one day of rest. For a few minutes this morning, acknowledging that work after the fall is both difficult and frustrating at times, let's see what this text has to say to us about what work is meant to be. As we do, I hope the Lord does two things. For those of us who have the wrong attitude toward our work, I pray God would transform it. And for those of us who already see work through the lens of Scripture, I pray God would sharpen that focus. And as He does, we're going to see that there is dignity in our work, purpose in our work, and freedom in our work. Dignity, purpose, and freedom. First, dignity. There's dignity in our work. Something that has dignity is something that's worthy of respect or honor. There's dignity in our work because God is a worker. Did you know that? God is a worker. You don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 1, we see God creating, ordering, filling, and admiring. 
creating, ordering, filling, and admiring. We've spent a lot of time in the text already, so I'll just highlight it for us. God creates all things of nothing by the word of his power, remember? And he ordered his creation by separating. He separated waters from waters and waters from land and land from sky. Remember that? And then he filled. He filled the heavens with sun, moon, and stars. He fills the sky with birds, the waters with the swimming things. And he fills the dry ground with animals, creeping things, and man. God's creating and ordering and filling. And after each successive development of creation, ordering and filling, God admires his work. He stands back and he says, that's good. He does. And we know it's right to call God's creation work because of what follows. Look at Genesis 2.2 if you have your Bible. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God is a worker and everything God does is holy and brimming with dignity. And God doesn't work because he has to. Now this is key. Listen, God works because he wants to. Or as Keller put it, for the sheer joy of it. God is a worker, but even as God rested from his work of creation, listen, he continues to work. He works in his providence. God never stops supporting or sustaining the creation. Listen from Psalm 104. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Listen to that. God's work of providence sustains and supplies his creation. God is a worker. There is dignity in work because God is a worker. And that's, it's not just that God, God's work has dignity. Our work has dignity. Our work has it because we work as God's representatives. And we've talked a lot about what it means to be made in the image of God. Tracy mentioned it in his prayer this morning. But one of the things it means is that just as God is a worker, we, as his image bearers, are workers. And though we do not create out of nothing, in many ways, our work looks very much like the work of God. Have you ever thought of that? Here's what I mean. Just like God, we create, order, fill, and admire. We do. And not only that, God commands us to do it. Look back at the text. Two parts of our sermon text this morning will show us this. Genesis 1.28, God tells the man, be fruitful and multiply. That's the filling. He says to subdue the earth or to study and cultivate and create and to have dominion, to order and rule. And though it's not explicit in the text this morning, I think we can infer that just as God stood back and looked at his creation in admiration of all the good he had done, God intends too that we would admire the work of our hands. To say, that's good. The work that we do has dignity because God is a worker. He commands us to work. And the work we do, we do as representatives of God. Now look at 2.15, and this is key. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? What does it say? Work it. Work it and keep it. 
Your work has dignity and you were made for it. You were made for work. Well, if it has dignity, is that it? Is that good enough? Well, it might be. But our work also has purpose and freedom. Purpose and freedom. Even after the fall, work is not some vain exercise. It's not punishment. Work has purpose. You may say, well, some kinds of work have purpose. No, all legitimate work has a purpose. All legitimate work has a purpose. Now, the greatest, now listen, don't zone out here because this is where the argument is going to become palpable. The greatest doctrine to come out of the Reformation was the regaining and refocusing of the truth that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. That's the, that's, if we had to pick one thing that came out of the Reformation, we'd take that. But friends, there was another wonderful doctrine that came out of the Reformation. It was the doctrine of vocation. The reformer Martin Luther, he changed German society with this biblical doctrine of vocation. Here's the idea. Every legitimate vocation has the same goal, the glory of God and the good of your neighbor. Let me say that again. The glory of God and the good of your neighbor. Now, some of you have noticed I've shifted my vocabulary. This is not a sleight of hand trick, so I just want to tell you what's going on here. We were talking about work, and now we're talking about vocation. You see, sadly, the word work or the word job, for many of us, those words drag behind them a long burden of unmet expectations, unruly co-workers, unreasonable bosses, meager pay, and endless frustrations. I want us this morning to stop thinking as much about job and more about vocation. The word vocation comes from the Latin vocaria. It means a calling. It's a calling. It's not just something you've fallen into. You see, we often talk about preachers as having been called to ministry. Have you heard that terminology? You heard that? What about someone being called to the mission field? Have you heard that? That's legitimate to talk about those callings. They're real callings. Here's what Luther helped the people see. The milkmaid is called to the milking. The cobbler is called to the art of shoemaking. You see, the Roman church had treated the clergy, the missionary, and the monastic as those who had a holy calling from God. And had treated everyone else as if their jobs or roles in society were less important, not worth of anything to God, of no real lasting value. It was a divide between the sacred and the secular. Luther, Luther's insight brought meaning and purpose to every legitimate vocation. And here's the key insight. Your work is not for you, it's for your neighbor. Now, this is a striking idea. Your work is not for you. It's for your neighbor. 
This is where the purpose and the freedom of the work are almost inseparable. You see, it's no coincidence that justification by faith and vocation were so closely tied together. Since justification is by faith and not works, guess what? Your work is freed up for other purposes. Have you ever thought of that? You do not have to work for God's approval. Jesus Christ bought the approval of God for you. Your work can be set free to other ends. Those other purposes are for God's glory and for the good of your neighbor. Now, I think this illustration that I'm about to share with you is part Luther and part Keller. I don't remember exactly where the lines are. But here's the idea. This is a, this, you got to go on a journey with me here. Imagine you're sitting at the table with your family for dinner. And on the table is a loaf of bread. The aroma fills the room. And, and not only that, it's artisan bread. Do you know what artisan bread is? You see, before baking, the bread maker has painstakingly cut little notches into the pattern of a flower in the top of the bread. I don't know how to do this, but I watched a video on YouTube. It's amazing, actually. The bread comes out of the oven beautiful. It really does. The only purpose is to make the bread more beautiful. And as you sit at the table, the bread, it's pleasant to the eyes. It's pleasant to the nose. It's pleasant to the tongue and the stomach. I apologize to the gluten intolerant. Luther did not know about that, okay? Just go with me here. Anyway, it's time to give thanks, and as your family bows their heads, you eke out some pitiful rehearsed prayer. Dear God, thanks for this food. Amen. Luther would say, no, you missed a great opportunity. Luther's prayer would go something like this. Lord, you give all good gifts And then you give those gifts through your workers. Thank you for the land that was free of war and the politicians and generals who have worked to cultivate this blessed peace. The peace you've provided in our nation made it possible for the field to be cultivated rather than trampled. Thank you for those who subdue the earth by tilling and planting. Thank you for the rain that you sent that makes the grains grow. Thank you for the men and women who by their labor harvested the grains. Thank you, Lord, for the miller who ground the grain and the stonemason who cut the millstone and the horses who dragged it to the mill so that he could faithfully act in his calling to grind the grain. Thank you for the baker who cultivated this grain, added to it the right ingredients, and with skill and care and artistry baked it to perfection. Lord, thank you for the one who delivered this bread to us and thank you that we get to enjoy it and be nourished by it. Vocation. You see, each person in that string of thankfulness had to do their part for the bread to be good and enjoyed. We thank God not only for the bread, we thank him that he has called, he has called so many to their various vocations, to make bread possible. 
Don't even get me started on butter. You see, what Luther uncovered here is not only purpose, but freedom. The gospel of Jesus Christ frees us. It frees our work for a new purpose. The monks and the nuns in their cloisters labored and what they thought were spiritual works for their own benefit and justification was to no avail. And in many ways, this seemingly spiritual act had robbed their communities of the fruit of their labor. Justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we now turn our work outward. Not so much for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. Friends, God called Adam and Eve to work and keep the garden, to cultivate and to protect. We have the same calling. God puts us here as his image bearers, his vice regents, his images, and he ordained that we, as his representatives, would work and keep this world for his glory and for the good of our neighbor. That is exciting. So let's see if we can apply it. Let's see if we can make this practical for tomorrow morning. Do you remember the question that we started with? What in this world are you doing? Friends, the answer better not be nothing important. And if we as the church have the same answer, we will leave our people living a bifurcated life of one part sacred and six parts secular that God does not intend. Dorothy Sayers put it this way, how can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern for nine-tenths of his life? God is interested in your life, all of it. Not just Sunday morning, not, your, not just your prayer group. God is in the courtroom. He's in the deal-closing room. The classroom, the operating room, the bedroom, the kitchen. He's in the lab, the shop, the field, and the garden. And everywhere else that you do your work. Hear me, God has called you as much to your vocation as he has called me or Jimmy or Robert. The calling on your life is holy. If you're a child in the room this morning, listen to me. Children, you have a calling as a child. You have a calling as a son or a daughter. You have good work to do because Jesus has freed you to do it. I didn't get permission for this, but a father came up to me this morning and he said, I want to tell you how proud I am of my son. Very young son. This morning he got up, he dressed himself before he came down for breakfast. That little boy is living in his current calling. Later in life we will expect more. But not now. Right now, he's living in that calling. If you're a child this morning, you've been called. God has work for you to do in your home, perhaps your school, for his glory and for the good of your neighbor.
If you're a high school or college student, you may be thinking, well, someday I'll have a calling. I'm not sure what it's going to be. No! Right now, you are called as a student. And you may be called as many other things, but primarily, probably as a student. You've been called to subdue the earth through learning. God has other callings for you someday, and they may require the knowledge you're currently supposed to be getting. So take it seriously. Take your studies seriously. It's your calling right now. If you're in the twilight of your time on earth, Sadly, you may be thinking this morning, well, I had a calling. I had a calling. No, friend, you have a calling. Even if your physical health is compromised, you still have some role to play in the work God is doing in this world. You might be called as a prayer warrior. A friend who writes encouraging letters or one who passes on the knowledge of family recipes. Can I get an amen? A good cornbread recipe is cultivation to the glory of God. Pass it on. We don't want to have to look for it later. You have work to do. You have good work to do. You may have retired from the vocation that provided for your family. Do not retire from the vocation of life. Prayerfully seek the new calling God has on your life. And you may say, well, I don't know what it is. Our friend Tim Keller offers a great question. Here's a great question you can ask at any age. If you're just not sure what you're called to right now, here's the question. How, with my existing abilities and opportunities, can I be of greatest service to other people? Knowing what I do of God's will and human need. Let me say that again. How? With my existing abilities and opportunities, can I be of greatest service to other people? Knowing what I do of God's will and human need. There is a lot of joy in serving others. What if all work was service to others? And friend, when you ask that question, you may be surprised at the answer the Lord provides. You see, some of you might be called to something that, if you're honest, you think may be beneath you. Are you willing to humble yourself to serve the Lord in the calling He puts on your life? You see, in the economy of God, there is as much dignity in sweeping a floor as there is in suturing a brain incision. Just as much dignity, just as much purpose, just as much freedom. You see, after God had made stars beyond number, he stooped down to plant a garden. Let that amaze you. When the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came in the flesh, He came as a carpenter. 
He lived about 33 years. He spent 30 of those in the sawdust. And I can tell you, I think he loved it. Just as he stood back from the burning fireball we know as the sun and said, that's good, I imagine Jesus of Nazareth standing back from a well-built table saying, that's good. You don't have to put any sugar packets under one leg of that table. It's good. Well, earlier this week, I was listening to that podcast I told you about on vocation. And the host made a comment about the resurrected Jesus. And what he said has left an image in my mind that I cannot shake. You may remember from John's Gospel, Mary Magdalene was outside the empty tomb on the morning of Jesus' resurrection. She was distraught because the body of Jesus was not in the tomb. And in her deep sorrow and confusion, John tells us that Mary actually mistook the risen Lord of the universe for the gardener. Do you remember this? (laughs) You see, Jesus' tomb was in a garden. Have you ever wondered why Mary thought the risen Jesus was the gardener? I mean, maybe only the gardener would have been in the garden that early in the day. Maybe. Here's what the host of the podcast said. What if she mistook Jesus for the gardener because he was gardening? Perhaps as she turned to see him, what she saw was a man joyfully and intently untangling a vine of briars from one of the plants. We don't know, of course, it's only conjecture, but it's not far-fetched. Remember our sermon text, and the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Jesus Christ came out of the tomb to work and keep. You see, everywhere Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. Death came to mankind in a garden, and in a garden, Jesus Christ brought life to mankind. For just a moment, use your sanctified imagination and think about this. What if, having risen from the dead only moments before, the first thing the risen King Jesus did was to begin to untangle the thorns and the thistles that Adam's sin had brought into God's garden? If that were so, what would that say about the dignity and the meaning of the work that you have to do tomorrow? Well, we don't know what happened that morning. But John does give us more details about another encounter with some of the disciples in the risen Christ. Sometime between the resurrection and the ascension, Peter and some of the other apostles, they went fishing, but they caught nothing. Do you remember this story? Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore and he called to them and he said, Children, do you have any fish? And they responded, No! There was frustration laden in that response. So Jesus says, well, cast your net on the other side of the boat. Okay. Well, they do, and they catch so many fish, they can't even haul in the net. Well, Peter immediately realizes it's Jesus, and what does he do? Of course, he jumps in the water and swims to shore. Eventually, the other guys catch up, and as they get to the shore, they find Jesus. He has built a small charcoal fire and has cooked them breakfast. 
Why am I telling you this? If the risen king of the cosmos, having just conquered sin and death, found it important to do a little gardening, build a small fire, and cook a little fish, what would that say about your life tomorrow morning? Tomorrow there's dignity and purpose and freedom in every calling God has on your life. And in some way, great or small, God is working through you to do his work. And whether Jesus was untangling briars that Sunday morning or not, that is what he is doing through you. There's a song that we're going to start to sing in a few weeks. It's Isaac Watts, Joy to the World. Listen to my favorite verse. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. When Jesus Christ returns, every last sin will be dealt with. Every last sorrow gone from the hearts of his people. Every last tear wiped away. Every last thorny weed pulled. And friends, he has already started the weeding. In Jesus Christ, we have hope, we have freedom, that our work is not in vain. In the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who accomplished everything his Father called him to do for you, in that freedom, go into tomorrow morning living a fully integrated life, every moment holy to God. Guys, tomorrow morning, there are fires to be lit. There is fish to cook. There are thorns to pull. And a thousand other ways God has called you to serve him for his glory and for the good of your neighbor in the freedom of the gospel of peace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's get to it. Father, thank you so much that our work is not in vain. Justification is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Our work is put to other means for your glory, for the good of our neighbor. And ultimately, as we do it, our fulfillment in you. Thank you, in Jesus we pray.